uh, that as believers, uh, we're supposed to be living in light of Jesus' return, whether that's seeing Him face to face in death or thinking of 1 Thessalonians 4 and He calls, there's a shout and a trumpet blast, and that until that day actually occurs, we're on mission, we're on assignment, and this talks about speaking to the darkness, and the way I would rephrase that is this, looking for the opportunities God gives us to talk to others about Christ. Is that sort of on the forefront of our mind? We're in a world that's lost without Christ, and we had a great Sunday school session this morning uh, talking about Jesus coming and presenting Himself, and that's what we want to do with others for sure. And I don't say this related to being manipulative or coercive, but being prayerful and asking God to show us what those opportunities are. Uh, How many of you guys are wearing green today? I hope most of you. There's green in this shirt, I assure you. I have no green shirts, but there's green, I promise. You can look at it later. We watched a video thinking of, of, of Christ's return and evangelism and the gospel. Watched a short couple things short uh, on St. Patrick of Ireland uh, yesterday. And you know, uh, Pat's not Irish, he's British. And he's stolen and taken to Ireland where he's a slave basically for several years. Returns to England. God tells him in a dream, go back home. And he does. He's able to get home but comes back to Ireland because just as surely he, he believed God said go back to Ireland. And he does. And so you got this, this bloody, idolatrous, Celtic group in and and Ireland. Uh, primarily all of them at the time at least. Most of them come to faith in Christ. So it's a great reminder. We've got a call. We're on mission. Think of Matthew 28. To share the gospel with others. So we don't always do it the same way. Our gifts are not necessarily those of evangelism, but we can all certainly witness to what Jesus has done for us. Uh, With that too, sorry all this before I get into the message, uh, Good Friday, mark your calendar, I don't think this is in the bulletin yet, Good Friday is April 19th, and I hope you'll be here at 6.30 when we have that service. It has become for me, maybe for others, it's an incredible opportunity to sit and soak in the words of Scripture, the lyrics of the song, and some of the meditations that we read as we go through what happened to Christ, what Christ willingly did for us related to His suffering and His death. And uh, the room gets darkened as the evening proceeds, and it is, uh, it's a unique time to think again or to think perhaps more deeply or broadly about what God in Christ did for us on that Friday 2,000 years ago when He shed His blood and died for us. And last, I promised before we pray in the message, uh, if you've been here a long time, you know my daughter Adrienne and her husband Roy and their three children are here from Southern California. If you know Adrienne White, make sure you get over and say hi. Okay, yeah. She's just as cute as she can be. You'll want to know her if you don't already. With that, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we know that truth is spiritually apprehended. And that apart from Your Spirit and Your Word, Lord, we don't get it. And we ask that You'd open the eyes of our heart. Lord, give us a willing spirit also so that each one of us leaves today hearing that thing that is from You for us. As we're in Your Word, Lord, it's all true, but we want to hear from You this morning about how that applies to our lives, the the particularities that we see and face today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, welcome to Lion Lime Church. It's right there, and I forgot to say that. So if there's anything we can do for you, why please holler and let us know. Hey, have you ever been in a group uh, setting? For me, it would be grade school probably, but for others it might be a job setting or some other school setting uh, where somebody else gets caught doing something they're not supposed to do. And you're relieved because it was them that got caught and not you. And so you become a little bit more circumspect and you sort of take a lesson by what they got called out for. Uh, this morning's lesson is like that. And we're, we're going to look at a group of people. We're in the series, Heroes and Villains. We're going to look at a group, not an individual this morning, but a group of, of uh, people that like other individuals we've seen, God calls them out for us. Not just in their narrative in the Old Testament, but again in the New Testament. And He calls them out because they're a negative example. And He's called them out in their day and time. And He's told us He's called them out so that we learn the lesson that God meant us to from what they were up to. They got caught. We may be doing the same things now. hope not. But we're supposed to learn a lesson from this. So the group we're going to be looking at this morning is the Jewish generation the adult Jewish generation that was participating in the exodus out of Egypt. So if you look in the Old Testament and the New, you see that God is, unfortunately, needfully, often calling out His own covenant people because they're blowing it. They are not faithful. They are faithless. And it's this exodus generation that is routinely called out, not only in the Old Testament during their own story and narrative, but throughout the rest of the pages, the Psalms, the Prophets, and the Old Testament, you'll see this generation is called out again and again for being faithless. So we want to make sure we get the lesson God means for us. We're in the Heroes and Villains series. This is, believe it or not, the 20th. And we said that heroes in this series are those who display Christ-like faithfulness. A hero of the faith is one who lives out Christ-like faithfulness and by the way we do so not because we're religious or we're good or we sit in church on Sunday morning we do so because the life of Christ is in us through faith we've come to faith in Christ we've been born again we have his spirit we have his word we want to be faithful like Jesus was faithful that's his life that's the power of his life in us and villains we said uh, villains are those who are faithless and the exodus generation of the Jews are meant to give us moral instruction on what to avoid. So we're going to be in a text in the New Testament. We're going to be in some Old Testament texts as well. But as we do, uh, don't, we don't want to look down our nose at them. God holds them up as an example. And so we want to read their stories and then we want to say, what does that look like for me in my life? What might that kind of faithlessness look like for me? circumstances are different, time and place are different, so we're not saying that's all the same, but what would those temptations to faithlessness look like for me today? What is God showing me that I am meant to avoid? The main point I'll point out on the front end, we're recognizing that, guys, our responses to the challenges, the trials, the unwelcome, the unasked for events that we're going to face in life, our responses reveal our hearts. They reveal faith, or they reveal doubt and unbelief. It's a given. And God has given us everything we need as believers to face the challenges of life as Christ would, faithfully. So that's what we want to pick up this morning. 
We're going to start not in the Old Testament with this group, but in the New Testament because Paul brings them up for us. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm just going to have sections of that on the overhead for you. If you use a pew Bible, this is page 957. Paul's writing a letter here to the Corinthians. This is chapter 10. And he's warning them. He's warning them about choices they can make in life that will remove them, disqualify them, is the term he uses, disqualify them from being able to continue to be a part of what God is doing on the earth. And so particularly for them, just like the Old Testament Exodus Jew generation, idolatry loomed large. And so he's warning them, chapters 8, 9, and 10 in 1 Corinthians are about this. How, how does a Christian live faithfully in the context of the idolatry that existed there? So he starts there, but he brings up the Exodus generation as the example. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 1. He says, guys, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers, so our fathers here would be the Jews of the Exodus generation, our fathers were all under the cloud, that pillar of cloud that was Christ's presence with them. They were all under that cloud in the wilderness. They all passed through the sea. They all went through the Red Sea. They were all, he uses the term, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He says they participated with God's man Moses in everything Moses did. They did too. They're part of that group and they're with God's man. They share that in common. He says they all ate the same spiritual food. You remember God gave them manna from heaven each morning. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So they drank the water that God gave. They ate the food God gave. They've got all this in common. And all of those are highlights. All of those are positive. And then he says, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Their lives were turned upside down in the wilderness. They didn't get to continue to participate. They were kept out of the land of promise. God had told them, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'll lead you into the land I promised Abraham and his heirs. And they don't get to because of the choices, the faithless choices they made. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. And guys, listen, this is, we, uh, this is serious. Uh, there's no generation in the history of the world that's more responsible than you and me to be faithful to God because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the completed Word of God. We have the fellowship of the saints, of other Christians. We have church history. We are more accountable than any generation before us. This is a big deal. So Paul says we are supposed to take our cue from what happened to people before us. The, that Exodus generation, therefore our examples. We're responsible to know what happened. And God's put it there so we can choose to be Christ-like in our faithfulness instead of like they were. He says so, they're examples that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, he tells us what some of that is. They were idolaters. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You remember that's Exodus 32. <clears throat> Excuse me. Moses is getting the, the rest of the covenant of Israel, and Israel's down below. He's up on the mountain. They're down below. They're already breaking it all. They've made a golden calf. They're bowing to it. They're practicing immorality. They don't even have the covenant yet. They've said, we'll do whatever he says we'll do. Well, they haven't even got 
the rest of what they're supposed to do. And they've, they've broken it all already. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It says verse 8, don't indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. This is a lesson we just looked at a couple weeks ago. 23,000 fell in a single day. That's the immorality that was part of the Jewish boys joining the Midianite and Moabite girls in worshiping Baal Peor. That was the story of Balaam and Phineas. He says we must not put Christ to the test. And isn't that an interesting way of phrasing it? Don't put Christ to the test as some of them did that in challenging God in the Old Testament, they were in fact challenging Christ and they were destroyed by serpents don't grumble as some of them did. Were destroyed by the destroyer. This is, these are the stories from Numbers 21. It's more complaints about food and water. It's the story of the brass or the bronze serpent you can read there. He says again at verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The point here is that generation, they all shared the same things in common, but most of them didn't please God and save two, none of them went into the land of promise. None of them got the blessing God intended for them because of faithlessness. He says, no temptation has overtaken you, but what's common to man, God's faithful because God's faithful. You can be faithful also, and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you may be able to remain faithful, Christ-like in faithfulness. So we've got the Exodus generation is our warning, don't do what they did. This is just a reiteration briefly before we get into the specifics, the other specifics of what they did. As a Christian, God's work in your life is, is to conform you to the image of Jesus. That's his goal, that's his work, that's his great work in your life. You know, if you look at the world large, uh, the cosmos, what's God's big plan? What's he doing in the world at large? Ephesians 1 says he's ultimately bringing all things in subjection to Christ. That's the big picture. And then you say, well, what's he doing in the church? Ephesians 5, well, he's making a bride ultimately that's fit to rule and reign with Jesus forever in a new heavens and new earth. That's a big picture specifically though for any individual christian this is what god's doing he's conforming us to the image of his son romans 8 says that those whom god foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so it's a given god's work in your life and mine as believers is to make us more like christ it doesn't mean we become less ourselves by the way it means we become the, the very best version of ourselves possible. That the character, the life of Jesus fills us up and we become all that God ever intended us to be. So it's not that we somehow dissolve and go away, but it's that Jesus' life fully informs who and what we are in all the ways God means that to occur. So when you and I are facing challenges just like the Jews... We are in fact displaying the degree to which the life of Christ is informing us. So when we respond in faithfulness, that's the life of Christ within us. When we are faithless, we are denying the reality of the life of Jesus within us. 
So we want to see the challenges, the temptations, the trials, and this is easier said than done. We want to view them through the lens my Father is giving me the opportunity to glorify Him by being faithful the way Jesus is faithful. Instead of other responses, as we'll see in the Exodus generation themselves. There's another verse on your sheet. I'll let you look at that later. So we want to face the challenges, the trials that we'll read about they went through faithfully, and God helps us to do that. Before we go on, you're going to face trials. You may face trials before this service ends. You may face a trial as you're leaving here and driving out on the street. You're going to face trials, right? I'm going to face trials. It's part of life on the earth. Some of them are huge. Some of them are less so. But you will face trials. So as we're working through these passages of the Exodus account, I want to be thinking about several things so that we apply it. What challenges am I facing It's a given all of us are facing issues this morning that we don't know quite how to resolve or what to do with. What are they? So they could be internal. It could be the struggle I have within my own character, my own sin challenges. It could be internal. It could be external. It could be another person. It could be a situation. It could be physical health. It could be anything. It could be spiritual. So it's going to vary for all of us from time to time. But as we sit here, hopefully you have a study sheet, What are the challenges I'm facing? What are the tests or the trials that I'm facing? As some of us think of these, we may be thinking of an area of our life in which we have a history. It's not just that I'm facing something for the first time. I'm facing something for the tenth time or the hundredth time. I'm facing a challenge in my life that I have not risen to in the past. I've got a history of failure, of sin, of one sort or another, What do I do with that? How do I change? How do I get out of that old habit? What promises in God's Word, or what passages like this, speak to the challenge, the temptation, the trial we're facing? Now this is important. I know positive people. They practice what they would call a positive mental attitude. And guys, a positive mental attitude is better than a negative attitude. I'll I'll give you that. But it's not enough to confront and overcome your sin and your temptations. It's absolutely inadequate. We need to know what God has promised, what He's given us, and what He said about something if we're going to respond in faithfulness. So when you see, I think this is on your study sheet, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Jesus faces His own wilderness testing. Just like the Jewish nation, right? 40 years for them, 40 days for Jesus. Both in a wilderness setting. Both were set up for trials and challenges. And if you remember at the end of the 40 days when Jesus is specifically targeted by Satan, He responds to every challenge one way. He quotes God's Word. He knew Scripture. He he already knew what God had said to the trial. If you and I are to face trials and challenges successfully, guys, we must know what God has said. Jesus used no special power when He faced the challenges and the trials of being hungry and thirsty and being specifically tempted by Satan at what would be His human weak spots. He did nothing more than you and I can do. He said, God has said. My response to that temptation is, God has said. Do we know what God has said about our area of trial, temptation, or challenge? We need to. This is something else we can do 
hopefully, if we've been in the faith long, hopefully we can look back on our own story and we can remember times God came through for us. That we were facing something, we don't know what to do, we need resources, could be money, we need support, moral support, who knows? If we've got a, a story or a history long enough with God, one of the things we can do to encourage us when a new one comes up is simply ask or remember, how has God provided in the past? What did that look like? Because if you walk with the Lord any length of time, you should have examples of that in your life. How has God done that? I'm encouraging myself by remembering what God has done. By the way, that's what you'll see. The Bible is filled with reminders of what God did. Just think of the Psalms praising God for the things He did a hundred or a thousand years earlier. Scripture is full of remembering what God has done. So as we face the fight or the battle in our own temptations and trials, we want to remember this. We have everything we need to be successful. You have as a believer, you have everything you need to face a trial, a challenge, or a temptation and succeed as Christ would. I just want to get into the specifics now of the uh, Exodus generation. And as we read these, think in broad categories so that we can apply it, right? Not that they're in a desert and I'm not, but what was the type of challenge or temptation they had that they refused to act faithfully in towards God. So the first one is Exodus 14. Uh, you remember they've just come out of the Exodus. God's, God is with a mighty hand, outstretched arm. He's brought them out from the strongest person, nation, and army on earth in the Exodus. And they've left with money in their pockets. And they're out in the wilderness. And if you read the story, God tells Moses exactly where He wants them. So they're wandering a little bit, and, it, and God tells Moses, now I want you to go down to the Red Sea. Well, when they get there, they turn around and look behind them, and the armies of Pharaoh are pursuing them behind. Now they feel like they've been trapped. The appearance of their situation looks like that dummy Moses led us to this place where there's no escape. There's a sea, a wall of water before us, and there's the army of Egypt behind us. We're trapped. And so what do they say? So this is a temptation, right? It's a trial. What are we going to do? How do we respond? And they say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. When they say that, remember what they're saying. Serving, they were slaves. They were cruelly oppressed. Their baby boys were being put out to die. And they say it'd be better to be there. You're like, really? And think of this setting too. Their take on it is that we are trapped. And God's take is, you're the bait, and the cat's coming, and I'm going to drown the cat. They're the bait. So God's, God's miracle working power to gain glory, which He said He was doing, by overcoming Egypt, He's got one last plan that hasn't been fulfilled. The nation's been wiped out, but now He's going to wipe out the army of Egypt. So He opens the sea, they walk through, and the Egyptian army is destroyed. Perspective was everything. God had already shown them all these miracles, and they're like, it's not enough. And guys, this is the thing. Uh, the crucifixion alone, the crucifixion and resurrection is all the evidence anybody needs to trust Christ. Absolutely. And God's gone far and away beyond that in giving us reasons to believe in Him. 
If we don't believe God, it's not for lack of evidence. If we don't trust God in our trials, it's not because He's not trustworthy, it's because we choose not to. They had reason to trust Him. And they said, no thanks, Moses is a wacko and we're going down. Should have stayed. Three days later, read Genesis 15, God's drowned the Egyptian army. They're free, they're going to go free, they're going forward. And they, chapter 15 is this great celebration, the women are dancing, the nation's singing, it's a great time. And then, chapter 15, verse 22 through 24, they, they get, remember they're carrying some food and water with them. So they get to some water and they try and taste it and it's bitter. And so what do they do? It says the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So the first one, they're thinking about our physical safety. We're not going to be able to survive. The second one, they're like, well, we won't have fresh water to drink. So they grumble and they complain. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That attitude of complaining. There's no problem. God tells Moses, pick that tree up, throw it in the water. The bitter water will become sweet. You're good to go. No problem. All they had to do was ask. But to this trial also, they face with unbelief and doubt and they complain against Moses. You get to Exodus 16. This is a month and a half after they've been delivered out of Egypt. And they're entering a, an area of the wilderness where the food supplies are now gone. Water's sketchy. And they're going to go into a desert and they're thinking, we've got no food and we've got no water. What are we doing? And so it says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron. They say again, and by the way, our unbelief is always in extremes about what God's up to. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. Death is better than this. In the land of Egypt, when we, and listen to this, they were slaves. Their baby boys are being killed. And they say, oh, but you know, we sat by the meat pots. We had plenty of meat to eat. We had a good steak. You know, we had bacon for breakfast. Maybe not. And ate bread. We ate bread to the full. Or who knows at that point. You brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they say now, again, they're always focused on the visual, the person they can see when it's actually God that's leading them. And they say they complain again. It's a failure to trust God again. This time for, we might say for groceries. Or we might say for grocery bills. They say, nope, there's nothing to eat. And what's God do? Is this a problem for God? Now they can't see a solution, right? That's always the challenge for us. We can't see it. If we can work it out in our own mind, it's okay. God, you and I, we're okay. If we can't work it out, we're not okay and God's not okay. God can't have a solution if I haven't already thought of it. But what's God do? God, you remember He blows the wind and He rains on them what? Quail. He rains more meat on them than they can consume. And He's not happy about it either. And then He gives them water and manna. He rains bread down every night. Do they have a food problem? They don't have a food problem. They have a faith problem. I can't see, so it must be impossible. God can't handle this one. That's God's specialty. We can't see it. That's okay. How, how is man going to be saved in the first place? We couldn't have figured that out. God did. Last, uh, Exodus 17, at Rephidim, there's no water. So there was bitter water. Now there's no water. They've seen this before. Can God provide fresh water for them? Well, He can. He has. But they quarrel. Moses says, why do you test the Lord? 
Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? They say to kill us and our children and our livestock. We're th thirst. So it's water again. What Does God have a solution for no water? He had a solution for bitter water. What about no water? That's the rock. Moses strikes the rock and the water comes out. And by the way, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock was Christ and the rock follows them the rest of the time in the wilderness. They have fresh life-giving water for the rest of the duration in a desert where there was no water. The, the, the stuff is not a problem for God. But to every opportunity, they said, no, we can't believe. Now guys, these examples, these all happened in the first three months. This is before they got to Sinai. Do we have a pattern here? If we don't want to believe, we won't believe. And it doesn't matter how many things you show us, how many evidences you present. If we want to believe, God's given us everything we need to believe. That's in the first three months. Two more. Numbers 14, a couple years after the Exodus. God is ready to take them into the land right through the southern route. They're going to go right up. But before they do, Moses sends those spies out, one spy from each tribe. They go through the land. They spy it out. They bring some of the produce of the land back. And man, it's impressive. And the spies initially say, you know, yeah, it's a good place. and There's lots to eat. But the spies don't believe. Ten of the twelve spies don't believe either. They've seen all God's miracles. They've been the recipient of all His grace, all His promises, all His provision, and they don't believe. And so they say, we can't do it. We can't go into this land. There's big tall walls we can't get over. There's big tall giants we can't get around. The land itself will consume us. We can't do it. And so the nation cries out and they say, we can't do it. Just like those spies. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. It'd be better to go back to Egypt. Let's choose another leader and we'll head back. It's another failure to believe that God is adequate to do what He said and provide not only for their physical safety, but for that. Now they're concerned they bring in their kids to provide for their kids as well. Now at this point... At this point, uh, their journey is essentially over as far as forward progress. Because at this point, God says to the Exodus generation, you don't want to go in, you won't go in. You'll spend the rest of your 38 years in this wilderness. And the children that you said would die going in, they're the ones who will go in and take possession of the land. In the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, they disqualified themselves from going into the land. They could have been blessed and they could have blessed others in the process. Words of encouragement, faithfulness. And they said, nope, we're not doing it. And so God said, okay, you won't. But your kids will. They were disqualified from continuing to be a part of what God was up to on the earth. Last, uh, number 1641 <laughs> And unbelief knows no bounds. Um, you remember the story of, of Korah and Dathan and Abiram and, and uh, the people. You remember they're, they're rebels. They're rebelling against God's guy Moses and Aaron. And, and what does God do? How does He respond? Well, fire from heaven consumes one group of men and the earth opens up and swallows the other group of rebels. And what do the unbelieving Exodus generation say? They say to Moses... You have killed God's people. To Moses, you've, Moses had nothing to do with it. Moses couldn't have done what God did. 
it, it's, it was a failure to trust God for leadership, for going forward at least. But to every opportunity to believe and be faithful, they proved faithless. Now, when we think about this, I hope you're thinking in your own life, what does this look like for me? So we've talked about groceries for sure. Can God provide me groceries, food and, and water and the foods we need? Can God pay my gas bill and my electric bill? Can God pay my medical bills today for many of us? Can God preserve my physical safety? And guys, sometimes that's for things like just health. Not being shot, not warfare, just health. And by the way, when, when you leave today, please don't hear me saying anything about uh, green lights and blue skies, okay? That God's solution to your problem and mine is always green lights and blue skies because Christians are called to suffer. And one of the key formative processes God uses to conform us to Christ is suffering. I'm not candy coating that God's answer to every prayer and every need you and I have is we're suddenly delivered. We're all healed. We're all perfect. Our children are all perfect. It's uh, Minnesota, Garrison Keeler's town. And they all look better. My kids look better than everybody else's kids. This is not what we're saying. Because sometimes God's will is suffering and it's hard and it may be long. So we're not candy coating that faithfulness may not be costly and difficult at all. These are words uh, from a Christian group that I really like. The title's a little misleading. It's called, I'm Living in the Land of Death. That doesn't sound good. It says, I'm living in the land of death. The trees are burning gray. There's a smoldering smoke overhead and the night looks the same as the day. So this is not a good situation. He says, but uh, I feel alive with a life that's not mine. Christ's life. Your law, so your word, God, is a stream in this wasteland, my lifeline. Your word is the water of life. It's my lifeline in this situation. From Psalm 19, they say, So much more than precious gold are your promises, my Lord. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. I love that. Life is hard. There's challenges, absolutely. A good life on planet Earth is still hard. We've got everything we need. And, and God shows us that in His Word. So we want to be careful that we're taking advantage of that. What's my temptation? And what does it look like to take God at His Word regarding that? And guys, if you don't know, ask someone who reads their Bible regularly. Or go home, get online, and look up Scripture verses on your topic, your challenge. Or go to your home and use a concordance, whatever it is. But there's all kinds of ways to look this up and see what God has provided. Uh, if you read through the Exodus Generations account, what you'll see is there's a theme that runs throughout. And it's, it's the term grumbling. Grumbling. So it's not just that they say words of unbelief and that they reject Moses. It's that they grumble to every trial. Grumble, that term is used 21 times in Exodus and Numbers because it's their constant refrain. And it's sort of like this, the thing that happens that I don't like, the situation I'm confronted with, I complain. It's my first response. I grumble and I complain. 
And guys, grumbling thoughts lead to grumbling words, lead to actions. If you want to reverse engineer, if we have an attitude, we speak words of grumbling, and we want to stop a sinful pattern like the Exodus generation have, of our response is faithless complaining, you start at the very beginning. A couple weeks ago when we looked at Korah, uh, we said one of the key things he didn't have was he didn't have thankfulness. He wasn't thankful for what God had already given him. We talked about being careful to have a thankful heart. This is about refusing an attitude of complaining or grumbling. And this is the way it works. If you have a pattern of sin in your life and you, you keep trying to confront it and you fail time after time, I can guarantee you're starting at the wrong point. When I've caved to temptation a little bit, I'm like a snowball going downhill. I'm just going to keep going. The, the place we take sin off is at the beginning. Uh, you may not know this, but some of you do, that Mike has a history of sin in the area of anger. Anger management. That could have been my theme. Anger management. None of the elders know this, though, I assure you. So don't, don't, don't tell on me. None of them know it. So, so I realized, man, I hate this. I studied Scripture on it. I did my Bible study on anger. And you know what? There's about two places in the Bible where anger is used towards humans in which it's not a warning not to be angry. It's like, wow, I'm blowing it. So I know what God's Word says, but you know, it's still hard to implement. So I realized I'm looking at my life, I'm looking at the cycle of what my sin looks like, and I realize when I'm in a conversation, my anger, that first thought of anger or frustration, it feels like adrenaline in my chest. That's my first response. And so I, I told myself, as soon as I feel that, or as soon as I feel anxious or frustrated, I stop. That's my cue. A wrong thought, a faithless response has started to whatever's going on. And so I realize I have to stop right here and I don't talk if I can help it. I don't talk. I don't say anything until my emotions are under control again. And I usually ask, Lord, what's at stake in this for me? Why am I upset? Usually there's no good reason. So I just stop. What, what's going on? What's threatened? Why do I care? Why, uh, why would I be angry? I talk myself down and then I don't say complaining, grumbling words and I don't follow through with unbelieving actions and acts. If you and I want to be faithful in areas we've not been in the past, it starts at the thought and the first response. This could be anything. We, we abuse all kinds of things, right? What's the first thought in that pattern of sin I have? That's where we stop sin. That's where faithfulness begins. First thought. I feel I've got a negative thought. I stop right there. I have to learn to stop right there and say, what is the truth? What does God say about my situation? That's how I want to respond. But we start at the beginning, not halfway down the hill. We're winding down, guys. I promise I'm going to run just a little short, so... You, you look, you think, where do I tend to grumble? What does that look like? And what would faithfulness require of me in that? What would that look like? What, would, what does Scripture say to that? Here's a question for you too. This is a question that is normally not asked in the Old Testament narratives. Is the person 
saved forever or are they lost forever? Usually the Old Testament narratives, that's not what they're talking about. For you and I today, it's everything, right? Am I going to heaven or hell? Is my future joy forever or is it suffering apart from the presence of Christ? What about this generation? On one hand, I believe there are a number of saved Jews. That is, they are eternally secure in Christ. They're saved and they didn't go into the land of promise. Now, I'll tell you why I think that. This is from Exodus 4. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books. So the guy that wrote Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and that faith, that trust, that belief was counted as righteousness that same author wrote Exodus 4. So when Moses and Aaron go down and they have that first meeting with the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish group, the text says, Moses wrote, and the people believed. They believed God's Word. It then says, they heard the Lord had visited, had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Guys, I believe for this group, and those scattered in the nation, like them, they lost the opportunity to go into the land of promise. They lost opportunity. They disqualified themselves from being a part of what God would have included them on. But they're in heaven and will be with them forever. As, as the saved, as Christians whose life is hid in Christ, we're good to go. We have eternal life. But we can do this. You and I can sin. We can exercise faithlessness in ways that we lose the opportunity to be a part of what God's up to. And that's a big deal. You know, being a part of what God's doing in fellowship with Him, with your Father, that's, that's as good as it gets on the earth. I'm part of what my Father's doing. Eternal works that He's ordained for us. That's what we miss. We miss opportunity to bless and to bless others. There are others in that group, however, that Scripture is equally clear about. They not only lost the opportunity to go into the land of promise, but they lost the option of eternal life. I bring this up because this is in Hebrews 3 and 4. And the writer there says this, take care brothers, just like Paul used the Exodus generation as an example, that's what the Hebrew writer does as well. Take care brothers, lest there be in any of you, and listen to what he says, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. An evil, unbelieving heart. You don't believe because your heart is evil. It's never been transformed through faith in Christ. We lose opportunity and we lose the option of eternal life forever. In this context, uh, Hebrews 3 and 4, the author quotes Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 says, if today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. It says that's what they did. And they fell. If today we hear God's voice, don't harden our heart. Either to the call to repent and believe Jesus, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but also for us as His kids, don't harden our hearts. Don't act like an evil, unbelieving person in the particulars God means us to be about now. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart whether you're reading your Bible, whether you're here on Sunday morning or any place else. Guys, I'm going to wind down here and I'm just your study sheet has a number of examples. I'll use one uh, to close. Jesus has faced every kind of temptation. Hebrews also says 
that you and I ever can or will. He's faced them all and he's faced them successfully. And then out of that, he makes promises to us about his person and his work as the provision for our faithfulness in our setting. Listen to this one, just thinking about thirst. So Jesus faces death, thirst, hunger, wilderness, accusations as a poor leader. The one on thirst, uh, if you think about the wilderness, he's, he's tested with thirst in his wilderness 40 days. But also, you know, some of his last words on the cross are, I am thirsty. Remember crucifixion, you not only struggle to breathe, but you're panting out all your moisture. You are incredibly dry. You want nothing more than a drink. And Jesus says from the cross, I'm thirsty. But what does He promise to us? Spiritual thirst. From uh, John 4, the woman at the well, He says, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. Or I like it maybe even better in John 7, the water that I give, it'll be like a spring in you. The Spirit of God will be in you and it'll spring up like a well or a fountain or a spring gushing out life, not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those around you. Jesus has faced them all. Jesus' life is in us. We have the ability. We have the Spirit. We have the Word. We have the encouragement of the Scriptures, the examples. We have the prayers of other believers. We can succeed. But remember, when that first thought comes up to whatever the temptation or trial is that's going to face you this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, next week, next year, stop on that first faithless assumption or thought. Take the thought captive and choose to ask God, what is your take on this situation? Let me read you these uh, lyrics from the wind down of that song I just read a second ago. They say, I focus my captivated gaze on the radiant light from Jesus' face. The water of life is all I crave. Only Your Word remains. So much more than precious gold is the beauty I behold. Give me the glorious reward of knowing You, my King, my Lord. And what you find is those acts, those actions, those words, those thoughts of faithfulness, they draw you more fully into the life of Christ Himself. And you can say those words too. It's great. It really is. Guys, uh, why don't you stand with me? The worship team's going to come up and let's confess together these words from Hebrews 10. This follows some text in which it was saying that because Jesus has died, He's gone into the holy place in heaven, there are implications for your life and mine. And this is part of it. These are some of the key implications for your life and mine as followers of a crucified and risen Savior. Read with me if you would. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen.